there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. On the night of February 1st, 1959, Nine students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Soviet Russia were camping in the Ural Mountains. It was the dead of winter. Temperatures dropped to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. But the students didn't stay inside that night. At some point, one of them frantically sliced open their tent. Based on the footprints discovered later, each of the campers raced from the shelter down a nearby slope and into the trees. They left the warmth of their stove and abandoned everything they owned. Something had shaken them to their core. By morning, they were all dead, and nobody knows who or what killed them. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the Dyatlov Pass incident. In February 1959, nine experienced hikers in peak physical condition were found dead under mysterious circumstances. Their bodies were all mutilated and scattered around the campsite. No one knows what killed them. In this week's episode, we'll track their nine-day journey to their final destination, a clearing on Kolat Siakl, which coincidentally translates to Mountain of the Dead. We'll examine journal entries made by the hikers, the few photographs that were recovered, 
and autopsy reports to try and reconstruct the night of February 1st, 1959. Next week, we'll dive into some leading theories on why the team tragically died. Among the proposed causes, the Soviet military, the Yeti, and even an alien invasion. In January 1959, Igor Dyatlov prepared to lead a hiking trip to a peak in the northern Urals in modern-day Russia. He was a radio engineering student at Ural Polytechnic Institute in Yekaterinburg and an experienced outdoorsman. He had no idea that his name would soon be forever tied to this trail and his tragedy. Igor was confident in his abilities. He'd completed a similar route through the USSR just one year prior. In fact, according to one of his friends, this trip was supposed to be easier than last year's, despite the fact that he was hiking through Russia in winter. Igor Dyatlov's team would consist of himself and eight fellow students, six men and two women aged between 20 and 24. Dyatlov himself was only 23. We'll speak on them as individuals later, but their names were Georgi Krivonyshenko, Rustem Slobodian, Nikolai Thibault Brignol, Alexander Kolevatov, Yuri Yudin, Yuri Doroshenko, Zinaida Kolmogorova, and Ludmila Dubinina. They were all grade two certified hikers hoping to earn their level three certification the highest level available at that time. And they planned to do it by scaling one of the Soviet Union's most dangerous mountains. As a guide, the group invited 38-year-old Semyon Zolotarev. He was an experienced mountain guide looking to gain an expert ranking on the trip. The trip was expected to take them 21 days. From their starting point in Yekaterinburg, they'd go directly north covering nearly 800 miles by train, bus, truck, sled, foot, and ski. The extended journey was necessary to reach their destination, Mount Otorten, which roughly translates to, don't go there. It was ranked among the most difficult hikes in the USSR. It would take them almost to the Arctic Circle, facing temperatures up to 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Given the demands of the trip, the students had to pack selectively. There wouldn't be much room for anything but the essentials. However, along with their gear, they also brought diaries and cameras. They needed to chronicle the journey to earn their certification. As part of that chronicle, the group planned to keep an official shared journal of each day's events. One of the students, Rustem Slobodian, wanted to bring one more luxury item his mandolin. Everyone agreed that he should. In fact, they considered it a necessity. It would be a way to entertain themselves during the long periods of waiting. Zinaida, or Zina Kolmogorova, was particularly excited at the prospect of music. She was known for her outgoing nature and was enthusiastic about getting to know her classmates on the journey. In fact, everyone was enthusiastic when they gathered at the train station on January 23rd. They chatted as they boarded, and then they were off to their first checkpoint, the small town of Serov. 
and the mandolin was put to use immediately. The group sang old songs and invented new ones. According to their diaries, they wasted no time with small talk. Instead, they whiled away the hours with deep discussions about life's big questions. Love, in particular, was a favorite topic for Zena, whose zest for life was contagious. She spoke passionately about any subject she was presented with. According to Yuri Yudin, everywhere she went, she filled the place with the pleasant breath of her soul. They also almost immediately got up to hijinks. The students had limited funds, and as such, they played a little fast and loose with the rules. On the very first train ride, some of them hid under the seats when conductors made their rounds to avoid paying the fare. But eventually, the excitement of the upcoming trip and the thrill of sneaking around the train began to wear off. The mandolin was safely stored away, and chatter died down as the sun set on their first day. By 3 a.m. on January 24th, their first night of the journey, most of the team was asleep. Only Zena was awake, writing in their communal diary, contemplating the solitude outside. Notably, it would be one of the only moments of peace in the expedition. At 7 a.m., the team's train reached Serov. They knew better than to expect a warm reception in the remote mining community, but they never expected the greeting they received. Despite freezing temperatures, staff at the train station wouldn't let them inside to warm up during their long layover. A nearby policeman carefully watched their every move. The students tried to ignore his furtive glances, but with each passing minute, he seemed to be watching them more intently. Georgi Krivonyshenko couldn't take it. He wanted to avoid a confrontation with a policeman, so he tried to break the tension with a song. But that just made things worse. The officer grabbed Georgi and pulled him away from the rest of the team. The students didn't understand. They'd done nothing wrong. They demanded to know what was happening. It felt like the officer had it out for them before Georgi even started singing. The officer cited Section 3 of local railway regulations. It forbade any and all activity that would disturb the peace. His reaction is more understandable when you take into account that Sarav was surrounded by several USSR military bases and prisons. Law enforcement took security there very seriously. The Soviet Union was in the middle of the Cold War. Any new face was looked upon with suspicion. In peak moments of Cold War paranoia, anyone could be an American spy, even a seemingly ignorant student who was just in town to hike. And so, Georgi was taken into custody. Georgi's detainment threatened to disrupt the entire trip. If he was held too long, they could all miss their next train. And, depending on the mood of the officer, Georgi might spend weeks in a jail cell. The stakes were particularly high for the student's leader, Igor Dyatlov. His mother had vehemently protested the expedition. She considered the trek a waste of time and their family's limited resources. If he didn't finish, his mother would be proven right and all the planning and expense would have been for nothing. 
Dyatlov continued to wonder if he'd made a horrible mistake right up until the door to the station opened and the policeman walked out. Luckily, Georgi was close behind. He was given a warning about respecting the law. He nodded along, trying to seem compliant. Eventually, they fully released him, and by noon, the group was free. But their train didn't leave until 6.30 p.m., and they still weren't allowed to loiter in the station. The group needed to find somewhere to take shelter from the bitter cold. Unable to find a lounge or restaurant and still wanting to save money, they walked to a local school. They asked if they could store their things and warm up during their layover. It was an odd request, but Zena's charm won over the janitor. She promised they'd tell the children all about their travels and camping adventures. He agreed to let them hang around, putting their equipment in a storage room and bringing them to the classroom. At first, the children were apprehensive, mostly of Semyon Zolotarev. Semyon was intimidating. He was much older than the rest of the group and had served as a frontline soldier in the Second World War. Given his history, it was natural for him to appear a little unstable. Eventually, however, the youngsters were won over by the hikers, their exciting stories, and their gear demonstrations. Before long, kids and hikers alike were singing songs. By the time the team had to leave, the school children were begging them to stay, with tears streaming down their faces. But the team was on a strict schedule. They returned to the station to wait for their train, but once again, bad luck struck. An angry man, who looked to be in his late 20s, approached them and began accusing them of stealing his alcohol. He'd apparently followed them from the school. His breath reeked of vodka. An argument broke out, and the police confronted the students for the second time in one day, just as their train was about to arrive. Luckily, the lie behind the man's accusation was evident. The team had spent all day at the school. They had an alibi. It was clear that their accuser had been drinking and couldn't keep his story straight. The police dismissed them. The group dashed to their train and made it just in the nick of time. For several hours, they continued north without incident. At midnight on January 25th, they arrived in Ivdel, but the end of their troubles was nowhere in sight. Up next, one of the hikers falls ill. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. 
still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now, back to the story. In 1959, a team of nine students from Ural Polytechnic Institute began a three-week journey through the USSR, hoping to earn their Level 3 hiker certification. On January 25th, they arrived in the town of Ivdel. It was the second stop in their journey, about 90 miles south of their destination, Mount Otorten. The air in Ivdel was eerie. It was the center of a gulag prison camp system, and its population consisted largely of incarcerated criminals, political prisoners, the military, and civilian guards. At the time, there were nearly 100 of these gulag camps in the areas surrounding Ivdel. The Dyatlov group didn't stay long. Soon they were on a bus to Vijay, but the accommodations there were worse than anything they'd experienced so far. In Vijay, they spent the night in a tiny guest house without heat and only four small beds. Alexander Kolivatov and Georgi Krivonoshenko took the floor, while the others tried to find a way to share. None of them slept more than a couple of hours. The next morning, they rode on the back of an exposed flatbed truck. The freezing air whipped against their faces until they finally arrived in the 41st Kvartal, a small camp for geologists and local workers. Finally, they could begin the hike itself. But exhaustion and exposure to the elements had already had profound effects on their bodies. In particular, it took a toll on Yuri Yudin. He developed chills and acute pain. When the team departed the following day, they hired a horse and guide from the 41st Kvartal to help navigate and carry equipment. But even with the help, Yuri's condition only worsened. He wasn't sure if he was up for the coming days, featuring the hardest leg of the journey, the hike to the peak of Mount Otorten. On January 28th, a disheartened Yuri Yudin could no longer stand the pain and sickness. He decided to return to the 41st Kvartal with the hired guide. It would be weeks before Yuri learned that his illness had just saved his life. As for the other students, there was little time to mourn Yuri's departure. The team wanted to stay on schedule, so even though temperatures were below freezing, they continued. The group's shared diary entry that day noted that the snow on the ground was lighter and warmer than expected. On several occasions, they even had to stop to wipe melted slush off the bottom of their footwear. As the elements worsened, they took turns leading. From the back, Georgi Kurvanishenko drew sketches to document their route and the terrain for future expeditions that might follow them. Around 5.30 p.m. on the 28th, the group stopped to camp along the Lojeva River. Igor Dyatlov and a friend had built a customized tent for the trip. It was large enough to sleep 11, and with Yuri gone, there was plenty of room. The spacious accommodations even included a mini-stove to cook on and privacy curtains for sectioning off sleeping areas. But even though the tent provided a semblance of comfort, in close quarters, problems began to arise. In her diary, Zena complained that the men made stupid jokes and mused, 
If we don't pay attention to them, maybe they will be less rude. Soon, the tension grew beyond off-color commentary. The sleeping arrangements proved to be a major point of contention. Nobody wanted to bed down next to the stove because it was near the entrance of the tent. The group voted that Georgi Krivonyshenko would have to sleep there. But the decision was made without consulting Georgi. When he heard the news, an explosive argument broke out. Georgi accused his friends of betraying him. He was tired, cold, hungry, and now he felt alone. In Sarav, he had been accosted by a police officer. In Vijay, he'd slept on the floor to let others have the bed. Now, he felt like he deserved some good fortune. The argument never reached a satisfying conclusion. Georgi was relegated to sleep near the stove, but he kept the group awake with occasional outbursts. And once again, they only got a few hours of sleep. It was now night five of their trip, and everyone's patience was wearing down. Tension from the argument loomed over the next day. They'd managed good spirits through all of their previous difficulties, but on the morning of January 29th, there was only tense silence. And the journey was far from over. The next day, January 30th, reached a low of negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. But the team needed to cover as much ground as possible if they wanted to reach the peak, start their descent, and reach warmer temperatures. The push to continue, however, took a toll on everyone. To make matters even worse, they'd planned to travel along the river, but the formation of ice dams made it impossible. They were forced inland to follow a trail created by the indigenous Manzi tribe. Along the way, the group posed for photos alongside markings and signs made by the Manzi people. Some of those signs noted how many hunters had gone through the area and which family or clan they belonged to. They also showed the types of animals that could be found nearby. Moose, brown bear, wolves, wolverines, elk, and lynxes were all common to the area. As such, the team was constantly on high alert for potential animal threats. With winter in full force, fresh food would be scarce, and none of them wanted to end up as a meal. Unfortunately, the hikers weren't quite as adept at following the Manzi trails as they had originally hoped. Although text and markers dotted the way, no one in the group spoke the Manzi language, so they could only guess at which path would take them to their destination. One diary entry noted, sometimes Manzi writings appear on trees. In general, all sorts of obscure, mysterious symbols. If we knew these letters, it would be possible without any doubt to go down the path confident that it would lead us to the right place. Lost, tired, and probably frightened, the group began to turn on each other. They squabbled about everything. Whose turn it was to light the fire? Who would assemble the tents? Who was allowed to rest or warm up while there was still work to be done? Even who was guilty for slowing them down on the hike? The next day, January 31st, proved even more grueling. Weather conditions made skiing slow and difficult, while walking was close to impossible. The group's journal observed they could only travel about one mile per hour. Around 4 or 5 p.m., the expedition set up camp again. 
They were severely off course and disheartened. They'd been traveling for nine days. The end of the final entry in their shared diary reads, Tired and exhausted, we start to prepare the platform for the tent. Firewood is not enough. We didn't dig a hole for a fire. Too tired for that. We had supper right in the tent, hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. The following pages of the journal are blank, which feels like a heavy-handed metaphor for the end of their story. The exact details of the rest of the group's lives can only be speculated upon. And there is plenty of room for speculation. We do know that on February 1st, after what must have been a grueling day of travel, they set up their final camp on the eastern slope of Kolatsyakel, the Mountain of the Dead. They were roughly nine miles south of their destination, Mount Otorten, and they were traveling the wrong way. They either didn't know or didn't care that they were off track. If they had survived the night, they might have been able to reorient themselves the next day using the clear views from Kolatsyakl's peaks. As experienced mountaineers, this would have been the logical strategy. They didn't have wood at the campsite, and they didn't dig a hole for fire, so we can only assume they spent their time in the tent's limited warmth. Interestingly, however, the custom stove was never set up that night. It was found in its case. Perhaps a sign that they didn't even have the energy to try to warm themselves before drifting off to sleep. At some point, they took photographs of what appeared to be bright orbs in the night sky, but the composition is too unclear to make anything out for certain. What followed, as best we can guess, were a few frantic minutes or hours of sheer terror. Sometime during the night, one of the students likely cut a hole from the inside of the tent. These included small slashes at about waist height, potentially peepholes so the hiker could see what was outside. Assuming whatever they saw outside was less frightening than what was inside the tent, they then cut two long slashes, ripped the bottom of the tent, and removed one entire side. Once they'd finished cutting away the fabric, the hiker ran outside. The others followed soon after. They didn't take any gear with them. Again, this points to something horrifying inside the tent. It seems there wasn't enough time to grab their knives or hatchets, shoes, or in some cases, jackets. They traveled into the darkness in negative 22-degree weather. Footprints showed that the group ran down the slope toward the trees for about a mile. That was where their bodies were found, some of them almost naked, one without a tongue. All defying any kind of rational explanation. Coming up, results from autopsies raise even more questions. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. 
That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, back to the story. On the night of February 2nd, 1959, a group of students called the Dyatlov Hikers were apparently terrified to the point of abandoning everything at their campsite. They raced down the slope of Kolatsyakl, or Mountain of the Dead, without shoes, coats, or any life-saving equipment. It was over 20 degrees below freezing. None of them survived the night. And for weeks, no one had any idea that something had gone horribly wrong. At first, when the Dyatlov group didn't arrive back in Vijay on February 12th, no one was alarmed. Family and friends knew that, given its difficulty, the trip could take a few extra days. But on February 21st, after a week of silence, search parties began looking for the students. The would-be rescuers included friends, family, dogs, helicopters, even some of the local Manzi people. Nobody was more familiar with the terrain. On February 26th, after five days of searching, the Dyatlov group's tent was spotted. It was the investigators' first lead. From the tent, they followed the frozen footprints toward the tree line. Naturally, it wasn't easy. Approximately 500 yards from where the trail began, it vanished. But at least it was a hint of where the hikers might have gone. The next day, on February 27th, the search team discovered bodies. Yuri Doryshenko and Georgi Krivonyshenko. They were found near the tree line. Neither had much clothing on other than their underclothes. Their arms were found raised up, as though someone had removed their apparel before their bodies froze, but after they died. A few feet away, the search party found the remains of what appeared to be a campfire. There was no indication of why the two men might have fled their tent to try to light a fire in the open forest, exposed to the elements. Nor could anyone guess who had removed Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko's clothing. The autopsies indicated that the official cause of death was hypothermia. But the full report wasn't nearly that simple. Doroshenko had suffered blunt force trauma to his lungs. Krivonoshenko had apparently bit off a piece of his own knuckle. He also had third-degree burns on his foot. According to investigators, it's likely that in a desperate attempt to get warm, he'd actually stuck his foot inside the fire. Even more curiously, Kravanashinko's clothes were found to have significant levels of radiation, but Doroshenko's curiously did not. A couple hours later, two more bodies were discovered, belonging to Igor Dyatlov and Zina Kolmogorova, the positions of their corpses indicate they may have been trying to crawl back to the campsite, one behind the other. Igor was approximately 1,000 feet from the tree line, and Zina about 2,000. Their autopsies revealed some peculiarities as well. Igor had been vomiting blood in his final hours, and Zina had a bruise on her waist. But both were deemed to have died of hypothermia. More than a week went by. Investigators had given up hope of finding any survivors, but they were determined to find more bodies, 
both for the family's closure and to try to sort out what had actually happened on February 1st. With more evidence, they were hoping that something about the case might start to make sense. Then, on March 5th, the fifth body was found. It belonged to Rustem Slobodian. He was discovered about halfway between Zina and Igor, also crawling toward the tent. Slobodian's autopsy showed signs of severe skull trauma. Someone or something had hit him hard. It would be another two months before the rest of the bodies were found. On May 5th, a Manzi man went for a walk in the area with his dog. The snow had finally begun to melt, and the man was pleased to see the greens and browns of spring peeking out. He was less pleased to see shreds of clothing. He followed the bits of cloth, observing more pieces along a trail. It led him to what is now called the Dyatlov Pass Den. The den was constructed about 230 feet from the tree line in a ravine that was protected from harsh winds. Hikers had apparently used cedar branches to create a barrier between them and the frozen ground. Confirming that this den was indeed connected to the Dyatlov incident, the bodies of Ludmila Dubinina, Semyon Zolotarev, Alexander Kolevatov, and Nikolai Thibault Rignon. The Manzi man saw their frozen remains and alerted the authorities. Interestingly, however, the bodies were not discovered inside the den, but outside, a few feet away. And they'd been buried underneath 15 feet of snow. Ludmila Dubinina was found on a rock near a stream wearing Krivonoshenko's sweater and pants. As a reminder, Georgi Krivonoshenko was among the first bodies found in only his undergarments. He was also the one who'd had a series of bad breaks between being taken in by the police and getting the raw end of the deal on sleeping arrangements. Other clothing that could have belonged to Krivonoshenko or Yuri Doroshenko was found on cedar branches near the den. A few feet away, Alexander Kolovatov and Semyon Zolotarev were discovered chest to back in an attempt to keep warm. They both had on several layers of clothing and a coat. Finally, Nikolai Thibault Brignol was found just a few feet downstream from Kolovatov and Zolotarev. His corpse was still wearing his hat, coat, gloves, and ski pants. Given that he was the only one fully dressed for Russia's frigid winters, it's possible he was actually already outside the tent when everyone began their frantic run for the trees. As for the conditions of the final four bodies, they were like nothing the investigators had seen before. Ludmila Dubinina was missing her eyes and tongue. Her nasal cartilage was broken and flattened, and there were several areas of exposed skull on her face. Many of her ribs were broken or fractured on both sides. Semyon Zolotarev was found with a camera around his neck and was holding a notepad in one hand with a pen in the other. But he died before he could write anything down. He not only had broken ribs, his eyes and one eyebrow were missing too, leaving part of his skull exposed. Alexander Kolovatov had similar injuries, 
but his skin had turned a gray-green color with specks of purple, and his neck was entirely deformed. Nikolai Thibault Brignol had multiple fractures on the side of his skull and a large bruise on his forearm. The trauma present on his body was the equivalent of being hit by a car. What's perhaps most puzzling about all of these injuries, though, is that the vast majority of them were internal. Dubinina's autopsy revealed a large hemorrhage in her heart. Thibault Brignol's skull fractures were so severe, his coroner initially thought he may have fallen from a great height. And Dubinina and Zolotarev both suffered a line of broken bones on either side of their torsos, as if someone had tried to pop their chests open. Further tests confirmed radiation present on the clothes and in the tissues of Dubinina, Kolovatov, Thibault Brignol, and Zolotarev, just like Krivonashenko. After all nine bodies were found and autopsied, it was time for the authorities to put out an official report. From the time the last four bodies were autopsied on May 9, 1959, to the time the Russian government closed the case, only 19 days passed. It hardly seemed enough time for a thorough investigation. And the official report was underwhelming, to say the least. It claimed that the deaths were due to Igor Dyatlov's poor judgment. The hikers had been unprepared for the conditions on Mount Otorten and simply succumbed to the cold. The report read, It should be considered that the cause of the death of tourists was spontaneous elemental force of nature, which the tourists were unable to overcome. They ruled out any foul play. After creating the official report, the government classified all the relevant documents. They weren't released until years later, and by then, some of the files had mysteriously gone missing. So what actually happened on February 1st, 1959? It's hard to find a place to start. There are almost too many possibilities to consider. In all, Nearly 75 theories have been put forth to solve this mystery. An avalanche, radiation, aliens, a yeti, an escaped prisoner, an attack by the local Mansi, a missile accident, and an ultrasonic weapon developed by the government, just to name a few. Next week, we'll take a look at some of the most likely theories in the hopes of getting closer to an answer. But if we don't, maybe the Russian authorities will. In 2019, the case file for the Dyatlov Pass incident was finally reopened. Maybe the government will find some new information. Assuming they're not responsible for the deaths themselves. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two on the Nine Hikers' Mysterious Deaths. For more information on the Dyatlov incident, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident by Keith McCloskey, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Keith Horvath, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. Thank you.